In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. The epistle reading this morning, though, is not the usual one for Tuesday for Sunday. It's a reading chosen for the feast of the 40 martyrs of Armenia, the martyrs of Sebast, who were frozen to death. It seems entirely appropriate we should be keeping that feast this year in Chicago. I left Chicago the other day. There was snow all over the ground. It was bitter cold. It was in the 20s. A few hours later, I landed in San Jose, California. It was mid-70s. I felt really stupid walking out with this hat on, this overcoat. <laughs> and, uh, people really did stare at me. Forty Martyrs of Sebast. That's why we have this epistle today. The epistle begins by saying that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, a nephos martyrion. Hear the word martyrs in there? It's literally we're surrounded by a great cloud of martyrs, which you strike us all with a certain amount of sobriety, don't you think? <laughs> the reason why this word martis is translated here as witness, the present passage, is its reference to the Old Testament saints, who would not be martyrs in the usual liturgical sense. That's why it's usually translated as witness here in, in this text. <coughs> The author has just finished chapter 11, which I've noticed comes right before chapter 12, which he has a long list of the champions of faith, Enoch, Noah, Abraham and Sarah, Moses and his parents, Rahab, Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel and the prophets, a list too long, the author says, to be inscribed in full. Now that's the context of this epistle. All the, all, the, all the champions of the faith who've gone before us and from whom we inherit the faith. This, wrote the author of Hebrews, is the company of the saints, the cloud of witnesses who've gone before us. They're those who lived the faith before us and handed the faith on to us. But they didn't just go before us. He says, we're surrounded by them. We're in their company. He will go on in chapter 12 to describe what that means. If you have any idea this morning, we just sort of came here by ourselves. And we're all alone praising God. That's ridiculous. We're surrounded by the great company of the saints. We'll come to that in, in uh, point three this morning. We're surrounded by them in the sense that we depend on them for our very existence. They are our elders in the faith. Just more remark now on three points with respect to this theme. The principle of eldership, let's start there. Number one, the principle of eldership itself. The idea has been around for quite some time that all Christians are created equal. 
and that there's a spirit, profound spirit of democracy within the Christian church. This is nobody, nobody prior to just a very recent time would ever have imagined such a thing. St. Paul wrote to the Corinthians, I handed on to you what I also received. That's called tradition. It's handing on. And you, you don't hand up, you hand down. It's tradition. Tradition is personal, meaning that it involves an I-thou relationship. This I-thou relationship, however, is one of authority, not of parity. It involves an eldership. In other words, the I speaks with authority and the you listens with respect. St. Paul himself is a you before he's an I. I handed unto you that which I also received. Paul himself received the tradition of the church and handed on. Now, this principle of eldership means a tradition that speaks with binding address. These elders have authority over us. We are defined by the tradition they hand onto us. I believe we would never have lost the sight of this, except that we live in what Christopher Clausen has called a post-cultural age. And I'll be talking about that through points, point two especially. We live in a post-cultural age which means that we really haven't inherited anything. I look around at what passes for culture in 21st century American. All I can do is sort of rip my hair out. Well, I don't really have, but the task is already long progressed. G.K. Chesterton, writing the beginning of the 20th century, suggested the term aristocracy, pardon me, democracy of the dead. By which he meant that a person does not lose his vote simply because he happens to be dead. That those who have died have an equal vote with us. I suppose that may work well in a secular society. I'm not even confident of that. But I believe that Chesterton's democracy of the dead is woefully inadequate because it suggests that we ourselves are the equals of those who've gone before us. I find it impossible even to contemplate such a notion. The very idea that I'm the equal of my father would never occur to me. The idea that I'm the equal of my grandfather borders on blasphemy. I would speak rather in the church of an aristocracy of the dead, meaning that the prophets, the apostles, and the church elders, the fathers of the church and their apostolic successors, hand over to us the faith once delivered to the saints. And that's why the church speaks with binding authority. Just the very notion that a church can speak with binding authority and lay down the rule for your life 
is something absolutely abhorrent to Americans. Most Americans are not willing to concede to an institution that's 2,000 years old the authority over their lives. If they don't really believe they belong to an institution that's 2,000 years old, and in most cases they don't. It says that we are not the equal of those who have gone before us. They speak and we listen. They form that great cloud of witnesses by whom we are surrounded. It is from those witnesses, the prophets, the apostles, the church fathers. What do we receive from them? We receive our very identity as Christians. We receive the sacred scriptures. And along with the sacred scriptures, we receive an understanding of the sacred scriptures. Because you see, just the handing on of the Bible is a very mixed blessing. It's a very mixed blessing just to hand on the Bible because people have read into this Bible anything they will please. It's important that when the Bible is handed on, an understanding of the Bible is handed on. A body of doctrine, a tradition is handed on. But we receive the Bible as part of a package. Not just a book we're free to make of what we would. This is our Christian heritage, my brothers and sisters. We receive it as a gift from those who have gone before us in the faith, surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. Now, these start with the Old Testament witnesses. The author of Hebrews, when he starts to list the Old Testament witnesses, begins with Enoch. And tonight at Vespers, we will begin with Enoch. And we'll go on tomorrow night with Noah and with Abraham and so forth. And we will follow the crowd of, crowd of witnesses as they're enunciated in the Epistle to the Hebrews and the book of Ben Sirach. Point two, an inheritance can be lost. Actually, it can be squandered. And this is the reason, surely, that immediately after talking about the great cloud of witnesses, the author of Hebrews goes on to speak of Esau. Same chapter. He says that Esau was a profane person who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. You see, Esau is not included in that great cloud of witnesses. Indeed, he is held up as an example of a man who deliberately put himself outside the eldership of tradition. What was Esau's problem? Well, I don't know. I think the psychologist would want to say, well, you know, he wasn't his mother's favorite. Then that may have something to do with it. I don't know. I'm not, I'm well instructed in these matters. I do see in Esau an elementary lack of self-control, or rather a lack of elementary self-control. As a rugged outdoorsman, perhaps he thought of himself as a man of tough discipline. Clearly, however, the very opposite was true. Esau was unable to control his appetite long enough for a meal to be prepared for him. Like a nursing infant, he insisted on being fed right now, capital R, capital N. 
as though he would otherwise perish. He wants what he wants what he wants it. That's a perfect way to destroy a culture. Look, he says, I'm about to die. So what is this birthright to me? A little exaggeration there, he's about to die. Undisciplined Esau, that is to say, gave up his inheritance for a slight but instant gratification. He was not defined by tradition. For this reason, we could speak of Esau as a self-made man. And we're surrounded in 21st century America by self-made men. Esau was a right now man. He's a what's happening now man. He did not derive his identity as a free and generous request from the past. He acquired it rather by his independence and his self-determination in the present. Esau deliberately alienated himself from what he could and should have been and from what he could and should have been able to hand on to his posterity. His sin consisted in separating himself from the tradition. The transmission of an intergenerational inheritance received through an eldership. The New Testament presumes that the entire experience of being a Christian amounts to this. Esau was very modern in the sense he was a quantitative man. If you can measure it, it has value. If you're not in control of it and you can't measure it, then it doesn't have value. So Esau thought an inheritance could be bought and sold. And having lost his birthright for a bowl of soup, he planned to gain his blessing with a plate of venison. Esau did not understand the difference between an inheritance and a commodity. You see, contemporary American religion is very much a commodity. It is very definitely consumer-driven. That's why the music is constantly changed, the message is constantly changed, the style is constantly changed, everything constantly changed. It's consumer-driven. Whatever people want, that's what we'll give you with a Jesus label on it. Esau imagined he could be a cultured person by reason of what he could purchase. He fancied he could prove his love of culture by the seasonal purchase of opera tickets or charter membership in the art gallery. I know people who do that and are completely uncultured, absolutely, totally uncultured people but they have this facade that I can purchase everything, that, certain things that look, look cultural. Esau did not understand that living culture does not belong to us. Rather, we belong to it. We cannot buy it for a price. It must be given to us from the past through an eldership to which we willingly submit ourselves, thereby permitting that eldership to define us. Esau understood nothing of this. I've written about Esau quite a bit, various articles published here and there. I've often referred to him as a modern man. Someone wrote and asked me, why don't you call him a postmodern man? And I said, I'm really not that far up yet. I, 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 don't, I don't understand postmodernism. You know, 
fact, I'm a little scared even to face it. And given my age, I don't really have to. Someone else will face it. I do, however, think of Esau in Christopher Clausen's category of a post-cultural man. I'm taking that from Christopher Clausen's very fine book, Post-Cultural American. Were Esau alive today, we would recognize him and those who bought their birthright for a bowl of post-cultural soup. They subject themselves to the baleful influences of contemporary society. You know, sometime our orthodox service books really do need to be updated. They, they truly do need to be updated. Uh, when, when you stand in back, those of you who have stood in back, Mark, you've done that, repudiated all these heresies. You had to repudiate Sabellianism, Nestorianism, Arianism, and so forth. Those aren't the heresies of today. The heresies of today are post-culturalism. The heresies of today are subjective truth, multiculturalism, one of the worst, non-judgmentalism. Those are the heresies of today. These folks subject themselves to the baleful influences, I say, of contemporary society. They've been exposed to the satanic notion the truth is subjective. You have your truth, I have my truth. Of course, the question I want to ask him is, is that true? Perhaps the acid of politically correct language has already corroded their critical faculties. Unless they have kept a steady guard, they may already have accepted in some measure the nihilism and the chaos and that phenomenon that goes by the insidious name, multiculturalism. All that means is nobody has any culture. It may be the case that they have in some ways been infected by the contemporary heresy of non-judgmentalism. The heresy described by Clausen as an egalitarian luck of self-confidence. You see, such folk are only consumers. They're not participants in a living culture. They feel free to choose and to discard. They, not the culture itself, remain sovereign. They establish their own standards by their own preferences, their own choices, their own tastes. And as consumers, they believe that the customer is always right. This mentality permeates our entire post-cultural era. It's very easy to recognize the children of Esau. Third, let's return to that great cloud of witnesses. You see, this great cloud of witnesses is very much alive. Our elders in the faith are still with us because they have bequeathed to us a living, breathing inheritance. You see, the one thing about a culture, by its very nature, it must be alive. Any biologist will tell you that. A dead culture is not a culture. What we received is not a museum. 
what we should receive is a living inheritance. The fathers of the church, the people who put the New Testament together, who decided what gospels, what epistles go into the Bible, those men, the fathers of the church, from whom we receive the sacred scriptures and the understanding of the sacred scriptures. If they walked into this building right now, would know exactly what was going on, would recognize everything that we do and we say as the faith they handed on to us. They would not come in here and find a band with drums and horns and heaven knows what else. They would come in here and hear simple chants being done, the chants that they themselves handed on to us. The same liturgical text, the same sacred scriptures, and the same understanding of those scriptures. This is the reason we surround ourselves with the images of these people in our place of worship. This is one of the reasons why the Orthodox Church insists on iconography as a component of our worship. We don't consider that optional. The earliest examples of Christian churches, the very earliest we have, have walls surrounded with the images of the saints. Back to the the excavations at Dura Europus and the Tigris River, the earliest churches are surrounded. A lot more pictures than we have here. We're just getting started here. The catacombs, second century chapel, the Capella Greca and the catacombs of Rome, second century, 150. The walls are surrounded with iconography, pictures from the Bible, pictures of the prophets, pictures of the apostles. When we pray, we take our place with these elders in worship. This is the reason that the epistle of the Hebrews in the same chapter 12 goes on to speak of our union with the elders in worship. Listen to this description of Christian worship in Hebrews 12. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, to the general assembly and church of the firstborn registered in heaven, to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of just men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling that speaks more eloquently than that of Abel. This is the great cloud of witnesses by whom we are surrounded, the spirits of just men made perfect. We came here this morning, my brothers and sisters, to join ourselves to this congregation of the spirits of just men made perfect, the innumerable company of the just, the angels who sing in heaven. They surround us in our worship. We don't just come here to do that, in fact, we do that when we pray at home. We got up this morning, turned toward the east, as the early Christians did. Made your first prayer to God. You were already placing yourself within the great cloud of witnesses, been praising God all night long. The angels who sing his praises around the clock. 
These are elders in the faith because it is from them that we receive the tradition and the loving culture by which we are defined as the church. Now, this evening, submitting ourselves to this tradition, we're going to gather here at Vespers and begin our Lenten fast together. The Lenten fast is not a private fast. We keep it observed. If it were a private fast, we would keep it privately. It's not a private fast, it's the fast of the church. We're going to be fasting, why? Why do we fast during these 40 days of Lent? To prepare those who are getting ready for baptism. Find that already, even St. Paul, remember St. Paul spends a three-day fast before he's baptized in the book of Acts. Since the end of the first century, before the year 100, the Christian church has preserved a period of fasting to prepare for those who are going to be baptized. Why are we going to be fasting during these next 40 days? We're going to be fasting for grace, for Mark, for Ming. During these next 40 days, they're all going to be baptized at Pascha, these three in our parish. And of course, other parishes around, around the world will be praying exorcisms over them. There'll be any special instruction to, pre to prepare for, for baptism. We're going to receive them into our midst. One can think of the 40-day fast as the birth pangs. We're giving birth to three new Christians. We're going to pray and fast because they've come now to accept the tradition of the church. They're going to submit their lives and hand over their lives to the authority of the church through which they receive their identity as disciples of Christ our Lord.